Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor Guy Standing from the University of Bath talks about work after globalisation. Essentially, my career has been threefold. First, as an economist and a writer. Second, as a UN official for 30 years. I was in the United Nations. And third, as someone who has been building up an international NGO. And I'm trying to link those three themes in my talk. And it's a very poignant month for me because for 30 years, I tried to steer the International Labour Organization away from the values of labor to the values of work. And I thought we'd had a triumph in 1998 when I persuaded the new Director General to use the term work rather than labor. But gradually, it shifted back, and the employers and trade unions pushed back for labor. So the slogan of decent work that the ILO has pushing around the world has become decent labor. Now, I wrote a critical article last year, which was published and has been very widely cited, more than anything I've ever written, I think, saying why I thought it was wrong to continue with laborism. And I've had a lot of feedback, including from many, many UN officials. Many have written to me confidentially saying, please do not quote me, but we agree. But the Director General is so angry that the official history that has just been published this month, he ordered that all references to all the work that I'd done in that period should be removed. And I'd seen the drafts, so It's a certain irony that I've been expunged from the history book. And I'm very much hoping that the Vice-Chancellor will not wish to expunge me in a similar way after this evening. Now, this talk is going to draw on a trilogy of books. And therefore, I may be extremely boring because anybody who's just finished a book is inevitably full of thoughts that he or she thinks are interesting but many others just yawn and wish that he wouldn't mention it. The trilogy, first of all, in 1999, I published a book called Global Labor Flexibility, in which I argued that the policies that were being pursued around the world were making labor markets far more flexible, but far more insecure, and that this was going to lead to a crisis of insecurity and inequality that would have to be resolved. That was the theme of the first book. The second second book was published in 2002, and the theme of that was essentially the mainstream responses to that insecurity and the flexibility. And the title of that book is called Beyond the New Paternalism, and essentially was a critique of the drift to paternalistic state policies. And the third book, which is due to come out later this year, is an attempt to go to the next stage and say in the consequence of the insecurity and the resort to state paternalism, what sort of policies and institutions are required in the future. And I'm very grateful for the publisher uh, of, of this book to be here this evening And I see it very much as a first stage and when we'll try to to encourage people to to read the book and and, and take it around the world, and it comes out in September. Now, the lecture has four themes. But like a good uh, meal, I want to turn to a prologue beforehand. And if at this point I can turn off the... That's right, thank you. I will start by just giving you a few key terms that I'm going to be using in the talk. I think that anybody who is a professor has to be proved to his or her audience that he's an erudite person and therefore has to use some long words, but it's only to show off, and I hope that none of you who are not academics will be concerned too much, but a few of the key words that I'm going to be using... The first word is rights, which means it has a particular meaning. A right, a human right, is something that is universal, 
indivisible, and unconditional, subject to law. The second words that I'm going to be using is commodity. A commodity and commodification. A commodity is something that is subject to supply and demand. It has a price, and the buyer determines what he or she does with the commodity. The third term that I'm going to be using is paternalism. The essence of paternalism is that others, other than you, the individual, to know what is best for you and therefore direct or oblige you to behave in particular ways, which the paternalist believes is in your interest. Now, the greatest critic of paternalism was John Stuart Mill, and he remains the great thinker, the liberal thinker, who opposed uh, paternalism. And as it happens, he also gave possibly the greatest inaugural in 1868, when he was sworn in as rector of Edinburgh University. And I would recommend all potential and actual vice-chancellors and all deans and all professors to read his great inaugural, because he resolutely defended the university as a place of learning against being a place for preparing people for jobs. He essentially said, you go to university to understand, to be critical, and to be dispassionate. And the final key word is a term that was devised in the 1790s by a ghost who hangs over the whole debate around the subject matter of this evening. The ghost is Jeremy Bentham. And he is best known to all students as the father of utilitarianism and belief in the theme, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. The trouble with utilitarianism means that you can also justify doing a lot to the minority who are causing unhappiness to the majority. Now, Bentham is not well known for what he also wrote. He had a brother who was advisor to Catherine the Great of Russia, she of 1,001 lovers, many of whom didn't survive the next morning if they didn't live up to expectations. Now, the history books do not tell us whether Jeremy Bentham's brother was one of her 1,001 lovers, but I can't make the story more interesting than that. Now, he was a security advisor to Catherine the Great, and Jeremy Bentham went across, and afterwards he wrote a series of what are called the Panopticon Letters. Every social scientist at the beginning of the 21st century should be required and encouraged to read those letters because they're eerily relevant for today. Essentially, Bentham devised a scheme, what he called a panopticon, all-seeing, for a prison but he also said it could be used for hospitals, for workplaces, for schools, and any social institution. And the art of the panopticon was that the guards sat in the middle, and all the cells were around. The prisoners could not see the guard, and they could not determine whether or not they were being watched. But the power of the panopticon was that it induced the prisoners to behave in ways wanted by the guards. Now, today, the worst case of the panopticon is in the Chinese city of Shenzhen, where I've been, where we've done survey work. There are six million workers employed in the factories of Shenzhen. Almost certainly, most of us in this room have objects, commodities, that were made in Shenzhen. And believe it or not, there are 10 million CCTVs in Shenzhen and a most complex data book on every single worker is being devised. But I'm going to come to an even worse case of the Panopticon later in my talk. Now the prologue and the prologue is short, and several of the themes are short, I hope. The prologue is this. 
every age, every age, has had its silliness when it comes to thinking of what counts as work and what doesn't count as work. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, I think they had a very good understanding relative to later ages. Labor was for the slaves and for the banosoid. Work, as praxis, was what you did around the home with your relatives and friends, and it was a way of building philia, civic friendship, which Aristotle saw as the purest form of justice. The work of a citizen was actually shole, which is a double word meaning leisure and learning. And essentially, he said, Aristotle, but also many of the Athenians, that citizenship was for those who were not doing labor, but were doing what we would call leisure, because they were the ones capable of participating in the polis as citizens. Now, Cato, somewhat later, added the dimension that has been singled out by Hannah Arendt in an important work in 1958, when he said, never is a man more active than when he does nothing. Because contemplation is an essential part of being a productive citizen. If you move forward, feudalism, under feudalism, only the serfs did labor. The rulers and the others did no labor. The physiocrats a bit later they moved the stage further and said only agricultural labor is productive. Nothing else is productive. We get to the real silliness, though, with the great Western philosopher Immanuel Kant, who decreed that no citizenship should be given to anybody that is doing the sort of things that we now call services. And it's a remarkable text that he wrote where he said that. Adam Smith, and I hope some of the economists are here, as a fellow economist, I, I've obviously been reg regarding Adam Smith as the father of modern economics. He said, quite categorically, that services were unproductive, whereas other forms of labor were productive. And he ruled out clergymen, doctors, men of letters, opera singers, dancers, and buffoons. Now, I'm sure all of us in this room fits in there somewhere, so we would all be castigated by Adam Smith as unproductive. This fed through into the 19th century with women's work, care work, the work around the home disappearing gradually. So we get the ultimate silliness in the early part of the 20th century where one of the great Cambridge economists, Riley, put it that if he hired a housekeeper, national income went up. If he married her and she continued to do the same work, national income went down. So we came to the 20th century and the model of laborism that was built up subsequently, relegated all work that was not labor to a second-class status. Until you get to Hannah Arendt in her great and wonderful book, The Human Condition, where she depicted a future of laborism and the jobholder society, another book I would recommend all social scientists to read. Now I come to the first of the four themes. Put that prologue aside, just think that work and labor have been treated differently over time. And I want to think how laborism evolved in the 20th century, because it is posing the problem of today. There are three documents that were produced in 1944, which have shaped all our lives in ways that many of us probably don't fully appreciate. Very remarkably... The first document was a book by Karl Polanyi called The Great Transformation. And I'm extremely grateful for Frank, I just saw coming in. I appreciate your coming, in, particularly in the circumstances. 
because Frank has been doing very good work on Polanyi, as have several others at Bath. Polanyi's book was written in Vermont, and he hurried back to London to continue his teaching in the East End, leaving it incomplete, and it was produced. And it was a very important document because it essentially said, laissez-faire of the 19th and early 20th century was planned. And it was planned based on the dominance of financial capital. Financial markets were supreme, and they fashioned national markets. In that period, there were systematic policies through the Spinum system and then through the poor law to create labor markets in which labor was commodified. Workers were selling their labor in an open labor market. But, said Polanyi, if you have a pure market economy, sooner or later the insecurities and inequalities will grow so great that will be threatened by annihilation of society. And of course, he had fled from Vienna in the 30s in the wake of the onslaught of the Nazis, and he saw it in those terms. But he was an optimist, and he said that there will be a re-embedding of the economic system in society by new systems of regulation, new systems of protection, and new systems of redistribution. And in that regard, he foresaw the post-war welfare states. Polanyi caught the mood of the time. But there was another book written by another man from Vienna. And I recently had dinner with Karl Polanyi's daughter, who very kindly has endorsed my, my new book, in which she told me that in the 1930s, when she was a very young girl, these two men used to meet occasionally in the corridor of this institute in Vienna, doff their hats, and these two men were to become two of the most influential figures in the world in the post-war period. Of course, neither of them realized that at the time. The other man was Friedrich Hayek, and he also produced a book in 1944 called The Road to Serfdom. And the road to serfdom was completely the opposite of Polanyi, and we'll come back to it. But it was largely ignored at the time. At the same time, in 1944, the ministers of labor and social protection, the trade union leaders, the employers of the world, of the winning powers, met in Philadelphia. And they drew up a declaration to take into the post-war era and there's a one-line paragraph which has caused, caused me more anguish than I care to admit in the last 30 years. It was essentially the same sort of message as Polanyi, but the message was, labor is not a commodity. One-line paragraph, labor is not a commodity. Now, if, if, if a commodity is something that is bought and sold and has a price, then all the economics textbooks have got a problem because we have demand supply curves and we have a W, wage, which gets the, the equilibrium. Now, the ILO was symbolic of 20th century laborism. It was set up by the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, and the essence of it, through international conventions and recommendations, was to take labor out of international trade and promote decent labor practices between employers and employees, using collective bargaining, freedom of association for trade unions, and labor-based social security, which came to its fruition in 1952 with the Convention 102, which again I would recommend people to, to, to read, because that convention, the Social Security Convention, essentially said that there should be benefits given to people who are performing labor, who have an accident or an un unemployment period, but it's basically a laborist manifesto. And remarkably, in 2001, the ILO said that this was one of its up-to-date conventions. But it was essentially a breadwinner model of 
social security. And it also promoted labor law. Now, labor law is a very different branch from common law. It's the only branch of law which does not presume equality of the parties before the courts. Now, to hu hurry on the, the, the points, Polanyi and the ILO ushered in a period of what I call fictitious decommodification. Because essentially it was eroding the wage but increasing the amount of state benefits and enterprise benefits given to employees as long as they were in a position of dependency and as long as they were in labor. Now, it's a very, form, very strange form of decommodification if you can only get your benefits by being in labor. But that is essentially what happened. And that is why I call that period a period of industrial citizenship, because essentially it was a model for industrial society where men were in full-time jobs, women were regarded as secondary workers, and a labor reserve. But a crisis came in the 1970s, which we all know about, which was the beginning of what I call the global transformation. And in a sense, it was Hayek's revenge. Hayek had gone off in 1947 to set up a society called the Mont Pelerin Society. And it had its first meeting in Montreux. And the essence of their views were they detested anything that was collectivist, anything that interfered with market mechanisms and individualism. And what is remarkable is that Hayek became the guru of Margaret Thatcher, of Ronald Reagan, of numerous other politicians, and went on to gain the Nobel Prize in economics. So he was a prophet honored in his own lifetime. But not only did he get a Nobel Prize, no less than seven members of that little society went on to receive Nobel Prizes in economics. And that group shaped globalization that's just come to a crash at the end of last year. One of the youngest recruits to the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947 was a young Milton Friedman. Now, Milton Friedman went on to shape the world monetary policies. And ironically, he died just before the crash. But a very interesting fact emerged when I was looking back and wondering why things were happening. Friedman's first book, in 1945 actually, was not about monetarism at all. It was about occupations and the need to control occupational bodies. Very remarkable thing. He regarded any collective body as something that was anti-the market and anti-individualism. Now, Hayek and his disciples went on to influence global monetary, fiscal, and neoliberal policy of the last 30 years. I was thinking of one of them, and I read an interview three years ago. He was boasting of his achievements, and he boasted that he had trained no less than 42 of the governors of central banks around the world. I would love to interview him today. But they were all very, very smug. They backed Pinochet. They backed a lot of very right-wing uh, views. But they ushered in a period of labor recommodification. And it's a very important part of the story that in the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a rollback in access to entitlements, whether at occupational level, enterprise level, or at state level. And you've seen a shift back to money wages. So this gives a misleading impression of what's happened to workers' earnings and income levels because they've been losing out on entitlements that are not money wages. You then get, as part of the agenda, and I'm moving quickly through it, a period where labor flexibility was the agenda. 
I think most of you have known about labor flexibility. Essentially, it's moving away from the standard employment relationship to more part-time, more casual, and the rest of it. And very key point, and I always make this to my students, one of the misnomers of the period is that this was a period of deregulation. Any student who uses that term in my class knows they're going to get a low mark. This was a period of tighter labor and social regulations than at any period in human history. I promise you. What happened was a restructuring of the regulations towards control of people and in favor of capital. And one of the things that happened was a spread of occupational licensing. More people in more countries are subject these days to occupational licensing, detailing how they can practice, if they can't practice, or whatever, than by any, than by unions or by collective agreements or anything like that. But another part of the thing, which establishes the agenda that I'm going to talk about, is that all the social institutions have been gradually dismantled. These were barriers to commodification. They were barriers to the insecurity that came with flexibility. The family, the education system, the laborist machinery, and the occupational communities and guilds. Until we get to a point where, in the 1990s, there was no alternative vision. We had a market society, we had rampant individualism, we had a dismantling of society organizations, and there was no alternative. Until we had third wayism of Tony Blair, Brown as well, Bill Clinton, Prodi, Cardoso in Brazil, and a number of other countries, which was essentially a utilitarianism that sanctioned paternalism as a way of getting around the insecurities that had developed in the markets. And ultimately, and I'll come back to this at the end, an agenda of happiness, well-being. We're going to make you happy. And the way we make you happy is we're going to get more of you into jobs. Jobs are seen as the way to happiness. So key advisors to the British government, for example, and there are others, I've clashed with some of them, basically say, look, people who don't take jobs, we're going to force them to take jobs because we know jobs make them happy. So we're going to do it in their best interest. The last part of this theme is the worst of all, which is we've had an enormous growth of inequality around the world. And the main feature of this growth of inequality is what I call chindia, not I, but others as well, chindia, which has quadrupled the labor supply to the global open economy. And in doing so, has added essentially two billion potential workers who are prepared to work for wages that one-fiftieth of what a German worker would be earning or a worker in, in Bath would be earning. You can't expect the functional income distribution between labor and capital to stay the same if you suddenly boost the global supply of labor. It is going to fall, and real wages are going to fall. So we've got a crazy situation just before the crash where a chief executive could earn 400 times what an average worker would earn. The income inequalities have grown enormously. And today, inequality in this country is greater than at any time since statistics on incomes were collected. This is a remarkable fact, given that we've had a party in power that was set up to reduce inequality and set up to provide security for laborers. Now, the last little part of the story is we must put class back into the picture. Graham and I have talked about this from time to time because class has not gone away. What we've got is a new form of global class structure emerging. 
in which we have elites. Maybe they've been punched in the face by the financial crisis at the moment, but it hasn't altered the basic dynamics. And then you have a salariat, which is shrinking. You have proficients, those independent consultants who move around and can earn good incomes, but accept insecurity. You have a shrinking working class. And underneath, you have the growing dangerous class. And that's what I'm going to talk about in the next three or four minutes. Because what has been taking place as a result of the market individualism and all the themes I've been mentioning is you've got a growth of a global precariat. This is the new dangerous class. It doesn't just mean people in temporary jobs, part-time, some contracted labor to outsourcing, but it's also a precarious existence. A term of urban nomadism has been used. I gave a lecture at the University of Florence a few weeks ago. When I was talking about the precariat, I could feel the electricity in the room because you could see that many people see that they might be in the precariat too. You and I may be in the precariat. It is growing. A feature of the precariat is that it lacks social memory. It lacks a feeling of historical roots in occupation and work and communities of work. And lacking a social memory, it has no reference points for ethical behavior. But there is also no shadow of the future in their negotiations and actions with other people. They can move on. They can be opportunistic. They can take their chances. And we have a situation emerging where migrants, racial minorities and ethnic minorities, are feeding the precariat. And on reasonable, ex reasonable estimates, one can say that 25-30% of the working populations of many countries are in this precariat. Now, this is the dangerous class, and why are they dangerous? The middle class and the falling working class, the shrinking working class, fear them. And it's no surprise to me that 80% of Italians favor policies that most of us in this room would regard as disgusting, like private vigilantes, like expelling migrants in this category, and essentially turning to very nasty positions. The precariat backed Berlusconi. Today, Berlusconi is introducing a neo-fascist program without any shadow of a doubt. They also backed Haider in Austria. They all backed the BNP in this country. They backed Sarkozy. And many of the others who are on the fringe will come up to try and take advantage of this dangerous class. Now, the dangerous class could go extreme right. One prays, if one were religious, that they won't. But the message I want to say to you is that unless there's a progressive agenda that offers a future of dignity and occupational citizenship to the precariat, then we have a future that is very worrying indeed. The third theme, which I'm going to be very brief on, is we are in a tertiary society. We are not any longer in an industrial society. And that means that we must have a new notion of time. Time in a pre-industrial society would have been measured in the seasons, by the weather, and you would not have implied a strong, rigid disciplinary system by working time, working blocks of time. Working blocks of time only work in an industrial society. Get up in the morning, go to the factory, clock in, clock out, etc. Life is broken up, school, training, employment, retirement. Blocks of time. So all those ILO conventions are essentially with a model of industrial labor and industrial time. But the trouble with the tertiary society, and I'm very sorry that George Lunt has retired because he and I had some wonderful exchanges last year about tertiary time, is that many of us are having to do an enormous amount of work 
for labor. Work outside labor that if you don't do it, you pay a price. Most people, even in our professions, the higher you get with your training and your education, the more work you have to do outside labor in order to keep up with your labor. Now, this is very stressful. And people who work part-time, supposedly like myself, know you can't work part-time because you've got to keep up with your colleagues, you've got to keep up with your learning, and the sense of multitasking and doing all these forms of work that is not labor, that we have to do, including ethical training, including financial management, including preparation for our work, etc., eats up an enormous amount of time. But the tertiary society that we're seeing is also dispelling the idea of a fixed workplace. There aren't fixed workplaces. People work wherever they are. The blurring of the division between home and work is getting increasing. But what you see, in fact, is that because people are working outside fixed workplaces, laws and regulations are spreading to reach into people's homes and reach into people's public spaces in order to control them and make sure they comply with their labor. What we've also seen as part of the tertiary society is many new adjustment occupations are emerging, just as we did at the end of the 19th century, and we see therapy growing, we see people trying to deal with stress, and we see a whole lot of new courses. I was reading yesterday about maternity coaching courses and paternity coaching courses, so that people are going on courses all the time in order to function better. Now I get to the, my final part. You'll be pleased to, to know. You'll be less pleased if I, if I tell you there are four parts to my final part. But I apologize for that in advance. Where do we stand today? We stand at a crisis that we predicted, that it is a crisis of chronic insecurity, of chronic inequality, of chronic collapse in the confidence of markets, enormous stress. We need a new politics of paradise. And a politics of paradise that doesn't promise a future of more and better jobs. That it will not get anybody to the barricades. We need a better model, and one which repositions the two great values of history, equality and liberty. I'm calling what I have in mind occupational citizenship. And the essence of it is to move away from all the laborist regulations, the laborist social security system, the laborist institutions, to institutions, regulations, and protective mechanisms that are based around work and leisure in the sense of the ancient Greeks, not play in the sense of sitting around binge drinking and watching television. Nothing wrong with doing that occasionally, but essentially we need to strengthen leisure. Now, if we think of occupation, we think in modern terms of combining different forms of activity, jobs, work, leisure, play, training. All the activities should be treated with equal respect. And one of the things we need to do is give a new respect to freedom. The left, throughout the 20th century, neglected freedom. They neglected it altogether. Whereas the right, the political right I'm talking about, neglected equality. And you need a respect for both equality and freedom. But if you look back at the great thinkers on freedom, you don't get to the conclusion of liberal freedom as individual autonomy and free to sell yourself you find that they were espousing associational freedom, freedom to belong to communities in which 
you could choose to be moral because you belonged to a community of morality and ethics. And the progressive march must include a strong appeal to the precariat and the proficient. And that means that we're going to have a struggle in the next few years over the distribution of the key assets of this new tertiary world that's being created. And the key assets are not the same as in feudalism when land and water were the key assets. They're not the same as industrial society when the means of production, the factories and the equipment were the key assets. The key assets today are security, time, knowledge, and financial capital. And if we think of time, we have to find mechanisms to make it more easy to do work that is not labor and leisure that is not play, whereas at the moment it's extremely difficult to do that. Karl Marx said that as productivity would rise, labor would fall, and we'd have more time to spend on our work as human beings and develop our human potential, or human essence, as he called it. Keynes, in the 1930s, wrote a very interesting essay in which he predicted that by now, all of society would be working no more than 15 hours of labor per week. Well, something went wrong. They didn't forecast the endless consumerism and commodity growth that we've been having we've been experiencing. Now, at the moment, we're seeing governments all over the world responding to the crisis with the same theme of strengthening job holding, more labor subsidies, more tax credits to keep people in jobs. But no sense of redistribution has come into the agenda. I think the precariat will continue to grow. And the insecurities that we're seeing out there that everybody is experiencing and talking about will continue to grow for some time. But I want to come to just a few policies and conclude with my own pet theme. Global society needs global occupational regulation. What does that mean? It means that GATS the General Agreement on Tariffs and uh, on Services, should move out of the WTO, which promotes market mechanisms, towards some other body. The ILO should be converted to a work rights organization, or you need to set up a new body for occupational regulation. We need standardized qualifications criteria around the world and an accreditation system to replace licensing. And we need to encourage a revival of the guilds. Now, the guilds were one of the great institutions of human history, but they were flawed, and they need to be revisited because they had many qualities that are suitable for this occupational future. The second and less easy uh, mechanism to address is we've got to combat the panopticon society. Now, this one I don't think has crept into the agenda of most of us in this room and most of us in social scientists, in social sciences. Besides the Shenzhenism that I mentioned earlier, what you've got is a new school of economics called behavioral economics, which is becoming hegemonic around the world, and they're breeding a theme a school of thought which is called libertarian paternalism. You'd have thought this was a contradiction in terms, but libertarian paternalism is essentially represented in this country by Anthony Giddens, Julian Legrand, Richard Layard, who's now been ennobled for his pains, and I've had many arguments with, with Richard, as he then was, about these things, but they essentially believe that the state must guide and coerce, if necessary, people to behave in what they decide is the right way. But besides Shenzhenism, 
a much more worrying thing has just happened. We've all seen and hope and keep our fingers crossed that Obama has started off as a potentially great president. Jeff and Angela went to the inauguration and I cause offense by questioning whether he deserves sainthood quite yet, but I certainly hope that he will be a great voice for a new progressive agenda. But there were several things that really worried me. One is he appointed a man I've had rather strong arguments with as his chief economic advisor, who had terrible views, which was Larry Summers in the White And second, he's appointed Cass Sunstein as his chief regulator. And here's another book that I would strongly advise all social scientists to read. It's a very easy read, but if your blood pressure goes up like mine went up, you might keep you awake at night. The book is called Nudge. And Sunstein and Thaler, who wrote this book, essentially say, look, you people out there, you're suffering from information overload and you don't make right decisions and we're therefore going to guide you and steer you to make the right decisions which we think you will desire afterwards. So they're going to alter the incentives and change the regulations in order to steer people to make the right choices. You're seeing the same thing taking place in big corporations, where they're using techniques of behavioral economics to steer people to behave right. And yesterday, day before yesterday, I had the peculiar privilege, I suppose, to be invited by the World Bank to address a conference where they are pushing precisely the opposite policy of what they were pushing 10 years ago. But what came across, and I'll come back to that at the end, what came across in that meeting in this huge plush hotel in the center of Holborn, which was all about poverty, they were wanting conditional cash transfers. So I said, you've come half the way, but the conditionality they want to impose is essentially a whole lot of mechanisms by which you make people behave in the way you think is best for them. Here we have a mixture of panopticon and paternalism that is developing at an extraordinarily rapid rate. And if we don't have a strategy and institutions to oppose panopticonism, we're going to see our freedom whittled away remarkably quickly. That leads to the final two points. Where do we see social protection going in this new world if you're trying to encourage work and leisure? We live in an age of anxiety, a precarious existence for more and more people, quite unlike an industrial society where a spell of unemployment or a spell of illness or maternity was expected to be a short period punctuating an essentially stable existence. Today, in a global market economy, we have systemic uncertainty. We have systemic shocks that hit whole communities. And in many ways, you can't have a social insurance system or an insurance system against uncertainty. People have tried, but they have failed. And basically, what social protection has to change is instead of an ex-post labor-based social security. We have to find mechanisms of giving people ex-ante basic security in which they can act rationally and in freedom. I'll come back to that. But essentially the argument leads in the book at this point to say, contrary to what the ILO and many social democrats through the 20th century were saying, is that we must have full labor commodification. Labor that is an activity that is supplied on a market must be properly priced, subject to supply and demand, subject to bargaining, but let's not try and pretend that it isn't something that is sold in a market. We have to remove those trap, trapping enterprise benefits which are highly inegalitarian and highly inefficient, and given what's happened to means testing and behavior testing of state benefits, 
we should stop pretending that you have a genuine social security system. Now, the redistribution story is key. Bear in mind that what has been said is that with a market economy, maximize growth, and then the trickle-down of the benefits of growth will mean that the poor will be raised up. So you don't need to worry about inequality because the growth, if you increase growth, you raise all ships. Now, given that inequality has been growing because of the global integration of labor markets in part and the bargaining strength of different groups, inequality is growing, so you've got the groups at the top and in the middle growing, leaving the the others behind. So in order to, to help those near the bottom, you've got to increase growth even more. And the growth pursuit is ecologically impossible to sustain. And it's about time that we woke up that we are rapidly destroying the ecology through our consumer-led growth. Now, I believe in capital sharing because I think that's the only way to get a redistribution. And I won't go into that, but there are very exciting things that are developing. Sovereign wealth funds are very exciting. The Alaska Permanent Fund is offering a, a very interesting model. There are mechanisms by which you can get redistribution without going through the, the labor market. But I want to come to my pet theme, because I realize I've used up more of your time than I should, by way of conclusion. For 25 years, I apologize for the length, for 25 years I've been heading or partly heading, if you like, an organization that we set up in the 1980s to promote a basic income as a universal right. A group of young philosophers, economists, and so on decided we would form this network to promote debate about it. Since then, we've had 12 international congresses in major cities of the world, and we're just about preparing our 13th Congress. But Bill, I'm delighted to see Bill Jordan here because he was also a founding member, an important member of that beginning, and I'm delighted also to see Carl Willicrist, who's taking on the baton with, with others. But I remember the 1988 Congress, which was held in London. And a young Brazilian came, and a couple of young Mexicans came, and they were converted to the cause. And they went back to Brazil and Mexico, and I and others were invited, and I spoke in the Senate. I spoke in various places about moving towards a basic income. To start with, we were laughed at, but then some people started getting elected and started introducing it on an experimental scale. Several people paid for their lives with pushing it. Really, they were shot. But gradually it became something that was picked up. And my friend, who was at that 1988 Congress, stood to become senator, and he, on this one platform, and he was elected, and he phoned me up the evening he was elected, and he said, Guy, I won. I got 4.2 million votes. I thought, it's impressive. On this one platform. Several years later, he was re-elected. Again, he phoned me up. I got 6.8 million votes. And when President Lula was elected president, although Lula was skeptical to start with, he agreed to introduce the scheme on a national level. Today, 46 million Brazilians receive it every month. And we know that the next president is offering to say that it should be a universal basic income for all Brazilians. I'm very pleased to say that our 13th Congress will be held in Sao Paulo on July 1st and 2nd next year, and President Lula has agreed to open it. We see the World Bank moving it. 
We see the Red Cross moving in the direction. We see various other international bodies, the Swiss Development Agency, various others are introducing schemes of cash transfers and moving towards a basic income. What is strange is, at this conference two days ago, imagine how I felt. Because 10 years ago, the World Bank was advocating full privatization, no state social protection system. And they spent hundreds of millions, incidentally, advocating that. Two days ago, they were advocating in front of me state basic cash transfers. And I couldn't resist the temptation when I came to speak to remind them that they'd changed their tune. Now, in the book, I'm advocating moving towards a citizenship income grants. And at the economic summit that the economic students organized here, I presented a paper on the idea of economic stabilization grants as a response to the crisis. And Bill and I will be talking about this at the Social Policy Association in Edinburgh next month. But I think a new rationale has emerged. And this is the final point. We have been watching the political class of this country becoming a bunch of clowns. They've all commodified themselves and in doing so have lost the residual credibility they have with us as citizens. But I don't think the reforms are just with the political class because the reforms should include us. The reality is that modern societies, because of the pressure on time, the laborism, the shrinking leisure, the less leisure this country has today than it did 30 years ago, people are detached from the political process. And I go back to ancient Greece one more time. Because, remarkably, in 403 BC, they had cash grants for the citizens to encourage them to take part in the political process of the city-states. And I think one way of legitimizing a movement towards a basic income security for all citizens, which I believe should be unconditional, but one way which doesn't offend me as an economist of conditionality, because others have crowding out effects and deadweight effects and other problems that economists know about, is to make them conditional on people participating in the political process of the country. Making it saying, you get your citizen grant as a right for the arguments that Tom Paine developed in his great books advocating it at the end of the 18th century. You get that grant, but on a moral agreement that you agree to vote and that you agree to participate in at least one community meeting in your town or village each year. Now, that may sound utopian, but in some societies, it's quite normal that people do participate in the scholle of their country and their community. Where we live in Switzerland, it's fairly normal that people participate in the community. And I think this conditionality would get us more involved in the political process. Now, it would be a tragedy if, in 10 years' time, my successor was sitting here saying, we are faced with a society and a world of extremism, of viciousness, of the precariat rampant in insecurity. But that is a prospect that we must face. And I think only if we think positively about words like redistribution, words like equality, and words like freedom by rolling back the panopticon, that danger is not too far away. But I, too, am an optimist, and I think it's a great time 
for a new progressive agenda which is going to do for the global transformation what the welfare state did for the great transformation, which is re-embed the economy and society and improve distribution and improve a sense of security. Thank you very much for listening.